cork pop. All right. Welcome back to the Spirits Guide podcast. I am Rich, your guide through the intoxicating world of spirits, books, movies, music, and anything else that I feel like connects us as humans. And I want to start out, as always, by thanking you guys for taking a little bit of time out of your day, out of your week, out of your life to spend it with me. And I know, I know, I know when I finished out last season and even last week, you know, I said that I wanted to reformat the podcast and get more into culture. And, you know, I always kind of joke that it's unedited, unfiltered, unscripted, and largely unprepared. I was prepared this week, guys. I was prepared. I was prepared to go into this new format. I have notes, uh, movies I I wanted to talk about that I have seen recently um, that I thought were kind of important to talk about and interesting to talk about. And then scrolling through Instagram today at work, uh, which apparently uh, there's a thing out there called silent quitting, where you've basically lost faith in the people you work for, um, and you're not going to quit entirely, and you're not going to get yourself fired. You're just going to go to work, do the bare minimum you've got to do to get through the day because you don't really respect the people you work for anymore. And I think, <laughs> I think that's where I'm at with my job right now is I've, I'm kind of losing respect and faith in the people I work for. And so I'm kind of silently quitting. You know, I still pay attention. I still do the things I care about, but I'm not going crazy and killing myself for these people uh, if they're not, you know, as dedicated to their business as I am to their business. So, yeah, I was doing a little silent quitting today and scrolling through Instagram when I came across something that got me so wound up, and you guys can probably hear this in my voice now, of like, I, I was like, I got to go home. I got to hit record. I, I have to have to talk about this um, because it just, it, it struck me that much. Um, yeah, so I, I may sound a little frantic right now because literally I just got home from work. 15 minutes before I hit record on this uh, and poured this drink, you know, it's still sunlight out. So it's going to be considered a little day drinking as well as silent quitting. <laughs> so what I want you to do, if you can, is hit pause on this podcast right now and go to Instagram, look up. Well, don't hit it right now. Like wait until I tell you what you're looking for and then hit it. Go to Instagram. Go to Fred Minnick's Instagram page. There's a video that he put up. Uh, and if you're scrolling through the thumbnails, it should be right up near the top. Uh, I'm looking at it right now. He posted this on Friday. Uh, so what day would that be by the time you're... Uh, February 2nd. So he posted this on Friday. And it just... It, it kind of pushed me to like, this shit's gone too far. Uh, the bourbon world has, has, and I, I'm not kind of knocking Fred, but I, I definitely, like, very rarely do I ever engage on Instagram. I'm not one of those fucking trolls who's going to put stuff in the comment section to, to gaslight people. God, I hate that term. Um, but to kind of stir the pot and, and either stimulate conversation in a good way or a bad way. Like I, 
I, I know I'm on Instagram, but I'm probably like the worst at it. Uh, I don't hashtag. I don't do any of that stuff. Um, I don't engage. Uh, I don't even like a lot of posts. I just kind of scroll through and, and check out what's there. And every now and then I find a piece of gold like this. So if you go to Fred Minnick's Instagram page, there's the thumbnail. Looks like him in his car. I believe that looks like he's in his car wearing a red baseball hat. And it's a little sort of a mini diatribe. I don't know on bourbon. So hit pause right now on this podcast. Go listen to that and then come back here and join me. All right. So you've heard what he had to say. And I was going to play it here on the podcast. And I honestly... I don't know enough about the legality of it and using somebody else's like I know I could repost it and and kind of do the remix thing with it on Instagram. But I don't know about the legality of me playing it on my podcast. Again, not that I make a dime for this. So it's not like he can sue me for making money off of his his sort of likeness or anything. But I just don't know the legality of using it. So that's why I, I didn't play it on my podcast, but I am playing it in my ear right now. Um, so let's take a listen. He talks about a growing group of bourbon fans who want to see bourbon fail. And then he mentions if a glut hits, it, which would result in less people being into bourbon and then things like Pappy would become more readily available um, in retail at a more reasonable price. I'm kind of narrating as the video goes on in my ear. Pappy will be on the shelves and more affordable. And that's not going to happen. I agree with him on that. He then goes on to say, if the bourbon industry falls, well, people are going to lose their jobs. Um, and retailers will have to re-strategize, you know, and switch to selling things like vodka and light beer. Holy fucking dramatic and scare tactic. All right. So I'm going to break this down piece by piece. He says that there's a growing number of bourbon fans out there who are who want to see the bourbon industry fail. Now, I talk to a lot of you guys all the time in real life, not through DMs or comments on Facebook or Instagram. Like, I talk to a lot of you guys face to face. We talk a lot about bourbon and bourbon hunters and the status of bourbon. People ask me what I think about the future of bourbon. I have never seen, heard, read, had implied that there is a bunch of people out there who want the bourbon industry to fail. This is like his whole little speech here is like a mishmash hodgepodge of incoherent things that don't really seem to be connected. Um, it, it, it kind of makes him sound a little bit ridiculous, to be honest with you. There's a growing number of bourbon fans, fans of bourbon, as if it's a sports team and you can root for it to win or lose. A growing number of bourbon fans who want to see the bourbon industry fail. That's like saying there's a growing number of Patriots fans who want to see the Patriots lose. 
maybe to get a better draft pick one year. But they don't want the team to fucking collapse. They might want it to have a losing season. Like, there are some Patriots fans who are okay with the season we just had because we get a top five pick. Right. But they don't want the Patriots to collapse. You know, they don't want them to become, you know, the Carolina Panthers or the New York Jets or, you know, the Chicago Bears. No, they want it to be successful. Maybe take a little dip to to get some some better prospects in but they don't want it to fail. So the the premise that there are bourbon fans out there which maybe he means there are people who love bourbon out there but they still want to see the industry fail it, it just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. <clears throat> Speaking of bourbon, you know, I <laughs> I promise you guys I had this show all script not scripted out but kind of mapped out where I wanted to go, the name of the the this episode was going to be Christmas gifts and red things, which was based on the things that I was going to drink. Uh, you know, I was going to actually start with the red things first and then get into the bourbon, go lighter, uh, lower alcohol to the heavier alcohol. But here we are. We're starting talking about bourbon because that's what Fred Minnick apparently can only talk about um, is bourbon. Uh, and he's such a, a snob that he thinks that vodka is the devil's work and vodka sucks, despite the fact that Julian Van Winkle, you know, grandson of Pappy Van Winkle, the most sought after bourbon in the world and eh, neck and neck with Michter's. But um, what he drinks when he's not drinking whiskey is vodka on the rocks. It's well documented in a book about his life. So the fact that Fred Minnick absolutely hates vodka, but it's Julian Van Winkle's also kind of contradictory to the, the liquor landscape. All right, let's get into whatever that weak-ass cork pop was when I opened the show. Christmas gifts. This was a Christmas gift from my dear friend Peter. Um, this is Penelope nine-year barrel strength. What I love about this, barrel strength 109. Whenever I see barrel strength in something under 120, I get excited because despite... What all the bourbon douches out there think that more alcohol means more flavor, not necessarily true. Sometimes true, sometimes not. By the way, another sort of let down whiskey that I've tried this year, uh, 1924. Maybe we'll get into it a little bit more in the end of the podcast. But I actually wished that that had more proof um, to maybe give it a little more oomph. Um, but I don't want to digress too far. I'm digressing from my digression here. So Penelope, barrel strength, nine-year bourbon, um, 109 proof. This is all MGP juice, which now Penelope is owned by MGP or Luxro or Luxco or whatever the fucking shell game that company is right now. Um, mash bill, 85 corn, 10 rye, 3 barley, 2 wheat. Uh, average about 65 on the shelf. I'm not sure what. You know, this bottle was actually purchased for because it was a gift. So, you know, it's kind of rude to ask that. And people know that I'm not necessarily a huge fan of Penelope. But Peter, being the great friend that he is, uh, knew that this was such a good bourbon that it would just break through my wall against Penelope. And he was dead on, um, which is the great thing about sort of our community and in my friendships with a lot of you guys is you guys know that even if I don't like the brand, I may like this whiskey. Um, 
I'm drinking this out of a Norlands glass. It's 109, so I don't necessarily need the wider mouth. Um, but it's just sort of the perfect, you know, I'm not using my big sort of hybrid um, Glen Cairn um, snifter glasses. And I'm definitely not using a Glen Cairn. All right, here we go. Mm. that is so good and yeah i mean it's mgp so there's no surprise there they produce great bourbon but just the right level of oak vanilla caramel you know good body 109 but it doesn't really drink like 109 if you told me it was 95 i'd believe that too nice little sweetness on the finish i mean it's a significant amount of corn in there a pretty high corn content so it does definitely give it that sweetness um yeah there's absolutely nothing wrong with that bourbon thank you peter for that uh wonderful gift uh, and I have been saving that to, to taste on the podcast. And now that bottle will probably get demolished uh, by the end of the night tonight. All right. So where was I in my uh, Fred Minnick dialogue here? Let's watch this again. Growing group of bourbon fans who want to see the industry fail. The industry. They want to see the whole industry fail. And from there, he goes into, if there is a glut, I don't know if he understands what a glut means. Because he says, if there is a glut and there aren't as many people into bourbon. Now, maybe he's trying to tie it all, you know, without making the distinction. But what a glut means is that there is more bourbon or more anything than the market needs. This happened in wine years ago where there was a wine glut. There was so much juice in California that all these value brands were coming out um, as a way to kind of sell them off. And yeah, there was a lot of brands out there that you could buy in wine for less money that were really, really good. And I think we as, as humans kind of have this thing where we believe that everything that's happening now is everything that's ever been. And we never really look at how did we get here? What happened before? What led to this? Um, and maybe not everything now is the way it has always been. What we had 20 years ago was a fucking glut of bourbon. When there were brands like Black Maple Hills out there that were bottling old Stitzel Weller juice for, you know, short money because nobody wanted the stuff. There were plenty of brands out there uh, that, you know, you could get for short money because there was more bourbon than what people needed. So maybe he's trying to say that if there's more bourbon than what people needed and there aren't enough people into bourbon, like the, the bourbon supply is going to grow and the people who want it is going to shrink I don't know, but kind of the way he said it sort of implies that a glut means that there are less people interested in it. So his whole premise is like there are people out there who want this to fail. And yet there are going to be less people who even care whether it succeeds or fails or not. Um, that that just doesn't it seems incoherent to me. 
and I, I, I'm sorry, I kind of keep going back and, and listening to this thing in my ear. So, and even says they believe if the glut hits, as if it's going to hit. So the theory is that there's going to be more bourbon available. There's going to be less people into it. And he says that their belief is that things like Pappy, Weller, um, Four Roses Small Batch Limited Edition, Woodford Masters Keep, um, that all these things will then be available on the shelf at a more affordable price. And that's not going to happen. His exact words, that's not going to happen. The reason it's not going to happen is because it already happened. And like I said before, I'm not the person who goes on Instagram and comments on everybody's post. Um, You know, I don't troll. I don't gaslight. I don't engage in those dialogues. because they're just kind of silly to me. But this is one that I, I had to engage in. And, you know, if you look in the comments section on this post, you'll see that I actually wrote a pretty long comment. And I would encourage you guys, if you agree or disagree with anything, please go. And this is a chance for us to kind of grow our little revolution here. Go make a comment on this video. Tag me in the comment. Maybe Fred will start to <laughs> reference me and this will be awesome for all of us i don't know that's just kind of a fun kind of jokey thing but the reality of it is is 10 15 years ago there was a glut because nobody wanted bourbon and you know what happened then pappy was on the shelf now if you guys are from my area you know the store if you're not there's a store in our area called julio's um in ryan is one of the biggest retailer names, independent retailer names in the country when it comes to whiskey. He's one of the first stores in the country to start doing single barrel store picks. He's kind of the godfather of the store pick, uh, and he's right up the road from me. And I know that years ago, he was doing store picks of Pappy. He was getting cases of Pappy not just lot B12, all the expressions. He could have as much as he wanted, which is why he still gets the barrels he does today. You know, we all had Weller on the shelf all the time. We all had Blanton's on the shelf because a lot of the bourbon hunters, the bourbon douches, as I call them, didn't give a shit about bourbon yet. And then some articles started to come out. There was the big crime where somebody stole a whole bunch of Pappy from the Buffalo Trace Distillery, put a lot of spotlight on it, and people started to care about this stuff. Buffalo Trace, the Sazerac hype machine, really worked this. And all of a sudden, there was less of it to go around. But there was more people who wanted it. But when there was a glut and nobody cared, you know what happened? That stuff sat on shelves. Um there's another post, and I want to say it's Knox Bourbon, uh, an account. I'll get that by the end of the podcast, where they put up a picture from 10 years ago of like a Pappy 15 for like 100 bucks on the shelf with bottles behind it. 
wasn't that long ago when there was a glut and nobody was interested that these bottles sat on the shelf collecting dust. So like Fred's proclamation that this is absolutely an outrageous thought that if there was a glut of whiskey and less people interested in it, um, that it wouldn't be available on the shelf. As happens with any product, you know, there are beers we used to have to allocate in my store. Now we just put them on the shelf. Hell, Sip of Sunshine from Lawson's. When that first started to hit Massachusetts four years ago, we were selling it one single can at a time. It was like bars of gold. Now we buy it by the case. We let people buy it by the case because we want it out of the store. You know, this whole concept that, you know, as a retailer that I'm going to buy stuff and hide it in my back room and pay all this money for it to a wholesaler, but I don't want to sell it and get that money back and make a profit in return is ridiculous. So it's not that outrageous, Fred, to think that if there was less people interested in Blanton's and there was more Blanton's available, and I've been saying this for a while now, if Blanton's was readily available all day, every day, and there was less people interested in it, it would be on the shelf everywhere. And if it was on the shelf everywhere, who the hell would want it? People want these things because they're scarce. This is my fear for the future of bourbon is once these things aren't scarce anymore, who's going to want them? And once people get tired of chasing things just because they're scarce, you know, what happens then? But for him to think that this is an entirely preposterous concept that if there's a glut that things couldn't become affordable and more available supply and demand this doesn't just apply to the bourbon world it applies to everything simple economics supply and demand all right let's start this all over again growing number of bourbon fans that they, they, they want to see the industry fail and, and the glut hits, and there's not even people. Mm. All right. All right. So I do agree with them to a degree of like you know, economy, corporate economy has definitely changed in recent years. So maybe, you know, happy 23 isn't going to be readily available on the shelf. It's never going to be a hundred bucks again. You know, those things are still going to carry that big price tag. But if Buffalo Trace Distillery has, you know, an extra 100,000 barrels of whiskey that was sort of marked to be Weller. Maybe they don't pollute the Weller brand. So you might never see like a Weller 12 on the shelf for 40 bucks where it should be. But maybe Buffalo Trace creates another label with a weeded mash bill that isn't Weller, but that they can sell off at a cheaper cost to get some cash flowing. This, again, is what happened in the wine world um, and continues to happen in the wine world. Uh, and it starts in Bordeaux, like 
in Bordeaux, you know, you make a bunch of wine and it's marked to be your label. Well, if you've got extra juice, maybe it's not as great as the top tier. You release what you call a second label or a third label. It's the same juice. Maybe some of it isn't great enough to make the cut to be in the $200 bottle or the $100 bottle, but it might be in the $20 bottle. It's all the same liquid. They're just finding other ways to sell it off. And sometimes you do it under a second label or a third label as a way to protect the brand. You might be able to protect a Weller or a Blanton's by selling off you know, something closer to like a benchmark. So I, in a way, I uh, agree a little bit with Fred of like, yeah, that's not going to happen. Like you're never going to see Pappy 23 for a hundred bucks on the shelf. You know, you're not going to see Eagle Rare 17 come down to 75 bucks on the shelf. That I agree with. That's not going to happen. But what might happen is Buffalo Trace might create another brand at a more affordable price point to kind of move some of that juice. Because let's understand economics. It doesn't cost Buffalo Trace any more to make Pappy than it does to make Benchmark. Let that fact register in your brain. It does not cost Buffalo Trace any more money to make Pappy 23 than it does to make Benchmark. Now, what it costs them in taxes to age it for 23 years, that's a little different. But the initial production cost is equal between Benchmark, Ancient Age, Buffalo Trace, Eagle Rare. It's all the same corn. It's all the same rye or wheat. It's all the same barley. Some of those whiskeys actually all start out the same exact way. If you go into a Buffalo Trace Rickhouse, their weeded mash bill, some of them after a couple of years get marked as Weller. Some of them after a couple of years get marked as Pappy. But the initial production didn't cost any more. It does cost more to age it longer and, and pay the taxes on that. Um, but the, the initial cost isn't any different. So in theory, you could sell Pappy for the same price you sell Weller if you aged it less. Um, so you might see secondary labels, but I do agree with them. You're probably not going to see the brand kind of hurt by selling it at a lower price. Uh, this goes back to a recession we had maybe 20 years ago uh, when a lot of the brands of spirits, by the way, bourbon wasn't even big 20 years ago, so nobody was talking about it in the bourbon world, uh, but they were in the vodka world. Uh, and Grey Goose kind of had an article that I have never, ever forgotten about where they talked about how they could lower their prices to accommodate the market as it was at the time. And at the time, the market was bad. I remember I had to take a 10% pay cut at the store I was working at uh, just to keep my job because we were you know, kind of tightening the bootstraps there a little bit. Grey Goose came out and said, we could lower our price. We could afford to lower our price and stay in business. Not a big deal. But if we lower the price, we'll lose our spot as a top shelf brand. Grey Goose by design, by the way, that big tall bottle is obnoxious. Uh, and it's obnoxious on purpose because it doesn't fit on a regular shelf setting. It has to be on the top shelf in most stores because of the height of the bottle. That creates a perception that it's a better vodka. They realize that if they charge more for it, people would perceive it as a better vodka. These practices have been around long before 
you know, Kentucky Owl was charging 300 bucks for bourbon or Blue Run was charging a couple hundred bucks for bourbon or all these other sort of small, crafty, niche uh, bourbon producers were charging a lot of money. Grey Goose was doing this 20 years ago out in the open. If we charge more, people will think it's better. This is not a new practice. Um, but bourbon people want to treat it like it's, you know, a cost of goods thing and it's it's not a perception thing. Um, wow, I just rambled a lot. All right, I'm going to take a quick break, uh, finish this glass of bourbon, come back and talk more about this kind of goofy Fred Minnick video. Man, I'm sorry. Those are two weak cork pops in a row. Thankfully, they are from two very, very good whiskeys. All right. So before I get back into my Fred Minnick rant here, um, and for real, guys, check it out and and comment or comment on on my Instagram. Let me know like what you guys think of this because to me, it's one. I think it's. It's very self-important. It's, you know, like, like, like all of a sudden it's a bigger, like, I don't know. It just seems like we believe that bourbon is holding up the world and uh, uh, all right. All right. Before I start getting into the rant, second Christmas gift that I got this year um, that I'm absolutely in love with. And, you know, I kind of wanted, I had a couple of different ways I was going to use this bourbon and I, I keep, <laughs> I keep taking little sips off of it. And I I've wanted to save this on the podcast. Um, and I, but I, I have to use it now, but <laughs> I finish it. Cause it's so, so damn good. Uh, you guys know, as I wrapped up, sort of last season before I, I took my break that I was on this ASW kick out of Atlanta, Georgia. Um, it, it's got sort of a fun connection to me. One, the whiskey is awesome. Uh, you know, I've got five different bottlings now of ASW. Two were, well, one was bought for me by my girlfriend. Two, I picked up at a local total, total wine. My first experience with them was a gift that was given to me by my friend Glenn. Um, and this one was a Christmas gift to me from my girlfriend's parents uh, who still live in Georgia uh, and were nice enough to ship this up to me for Christmas. Uh, this is the ASW Fiddler Bourbon Amberana Finish. Here's the the, the stats. Um, I don't know the exact mash bill. I do know that the base whiskey is a four-year MGP, and it's 45% wheat. Uh, I don't know the price, again, because it was a gift, but from looking online, I've seen it anywhere from 90 bucks to $120. Bucks. Uh, this one is clocking in at 110 proof. You know, it's kind of cool because on the, the label, you have to kind of hold it in the right light to get the proof number because they just use a standard label. It's got some nice texture to it, too. Um, but the line for percentage of alcohol 
is left blank and it looks like it's handwritten in at 55, which means there might be some proof variation batch to batch. I have seen this kind of pop up on Sealbox for order now. Um, and hopefully, hopefully, uh, my friend Peter had sent me this link uh, for Sealbox to, you know, refer a friend. You get 25 bucks off your order. And we had looked into Sealbox in the past and they never shipped to Massachusetts. And I put an order in. It went through. Uh, I'm waiting to see if the order actually shows up and they actually do ship it to Massachusetts. I will keep you guys posted on that. But if they are indeed shipping to Massachusetts, this is going to be a game changer. Um, I think for me personally, for for my spirits buying. Um, and hopefully it will maybe inspire some of these distilleries to just stay at home. Don't try to go nationwide with your production uh, because a lot of these things might be big in your local market, but when you come to a national market, people are curious. They buy it once. Getting a rebuy on you know a, a quirky craft product isn't always the easiest thing for a retailer to do, um, but if you're shipping, then I can buy a bottle of ASW as I need it. Um, and I don't have to worry about being a retailer and bringing in five cases of the stuff. Um, so I think being able to ship could be a game changer to actually save uh, the bourbon landscape a little bit. Because really, you know, kind of in accordance with Fred's rant that people want the bourbon industry to fail. And by the way, I don't want it to fail. I kind of want some of the bourbon douches to lay off driving the prices up. I want to see the overinflation and the self-importance of the bourbon industry kind of go away. But I don't want the industry to fail um, by any means. I just want it to kind of get in line with all the other products. And as we get back into Fred's little diatribe here, um, you'll see like the the sort of self-importance uh, that he places on everything. Um, and I think maybe even a little bit of self-importance that he places on himself. All right, Fiddler, Amberana. If you have not had something finished in Amberana yet, go out and try it. Um, you know, I've kind of joked about it, like, you know, bourbon douches shit on flavored whiskey, but whiskey finished, they're okay with that. And this, this could be a flavored whiskey. You know, it's... And it is flavored. It's it's bourbon that's been aged in or finished in Amberana barrels, which has then picked up flavors of Amberana. So in reality, it's a flavored whiskey. And it, it's got such interesting aromas and tastes. Uh, it, it's got in the best way possible. It reminds me of like the old wax teeth that we used to chew on as kids or those old uh, little wax bottles that had like juice in them that we used to chew on as a kid. It's got some of that on the nose, um, but it's got uh, like a lot of eggnog flavors like that sort of custardy, eggy, vanilla, um, like cinnamon, nutmeg, clove flavors. And I have heard from, from people in, you know, in whiskey that 
sometimes you only have to finish it for like two weeks and it picks up all these aromas and flavors. Like the amber brown of wood is that strong. It also masks that 110 proof because I can get my nose all the way in the glass and I'm using the same Norlands glass. And I don't know if the microphone is picking up that sniff, but like I'm taking a deep breath through my nose, nose buried in that glass. There is not one, one speck of burn coming out of that glass. All right. Now, typically, I think rye actually works better with an amber on a finish because of the spice of the rye works better with the sweetness of this. I've tasted a few, uh, you know, bourbons that are finished with amber on a. They don't really wow me, including that rare character one um, that my store almost bought and I thankfully talked the owner out of. Yeah, and there's almost like a like a a fennel on the back, like that sort of almost like licorice. Just a hint. It's not like fucking sambuca or anything, but there's just like a hint of like fennel on the back. Super, super interesting. Um, really, really good stuff. Uh, so thank you again to my girlfriend, and thank you again to her family, uh, who are wonderful people. Uh, down there in, in the ATL. All right, let's get back to, to Fred's sort of crazy rant. Mm-mm-mm. All right. All right. I, I don't... Hopefully you guys have watched this and you can play along with me. Yep. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's so much to break down in this 60 second video. All right. If a glut hits and the bourbon industry falls, people are going to lose their job. Companies will go bankrupt, and liquor stores will have to change their strategy and move away from bourbon and cognac and go to cheaper things like vodka and light fucking beer. There is so much to unpack in that. If the bourbon industry fails, as if life kind of centers around the bourbon industry, and it does in Kentucky, you know, that which is a fair statement, you know, a lot of stuff in there. But what are the possibilities that the bourbon industry is overinflated right now? What if, what is the possibility that, you know, the world doesn't need another $250 million distillery to pump out even more product? You know, there's already a barrel of whiskey in Kentucky aging for every man, woman, and child that lives in Kentucky. So, Everybody who is greedy, all the bankers, all the corporates, they all want in on the action. So they're building more rickhouses. They're building more distilleries. You know, they're pumping all this money. It's called speculation. 
I'm in the middle of reading a book right now talking about the tea industry in the 1800s when Britain kind of figured out that they wanted to make to grow their own tea so they weren't reliant on China anymore. And all the greedy speculators and bankers started pumping all this money into the industry. And you know what happened? It failed. We're watching it happen in wine right now. Wine had its peak 20 years ago, and everybody wanted in on the action. And all the bankers were bankrolling all these companies and all these corporate people who thought, like, this is the next big thing. All I got to do is just put out wine, and I'm going to be a millionaire. And we've seen what's happened in the wine industry in California in the last three or four years. One, wine is on the decline. And I've said this before, everybody who thinks it's cyclical, no. 50 years ago, we were buying 100 cases of Harvey's Bristol Cream a year. Now we buy one. We were buying a ton of port. We were buying all these different wine things that nobody drinks anymore. People used to drink a ton of Lillet and Dubonnet. Those things have gone away. American palates have changed. So the thought that like if the bourbon industry fails, holy fuckballs, the sky is going to fall. The company will be in disarray. Cats and dogs living together. That's from Ghostbusters, if you didn't know. Um, the dramatic presentation of like if the bourbon industry fails, might not fail, but it's got to recede. It is way too overinflated. When all this stuff started getting hot a few years ago, everybody started jumping in. Everybody wants a piece of the action. We've watched it with RTDs over the last few years. All of a sudden, everybody wants to make an RTD. Why? Because somebody got successful with RTDs. We're watching it with tequila. Tequila started to get a little bit of success. Everybody wanted in the tequila market. Every goddamn celebrity wants into the tequila market. Do you think that's going to sustain forever? Do you think you can just blow a balloon up, it gets to a certain size, and you can just keep adding air to it? No, it's going to pop. That simple math, that simple you know, science, the bourbon bubble will pop. It's not going to keep growing to infinity. If it fails, people are going to lose their jobs. Do you know how many brands I have seen come and go in my 30 years in the spirits industry? You know, how much B&B we used to sell and then it became overinflated. People lose their jobs. They find jobs in other fields. You know, people who used to make ashtrays for a living had to find another job because you can't smoke anywhere. <laughs> you know, like life kind of evolves and changes. So this sort of dramatic presentation, like if bourbon fails, then everything goes to shit. The whole world is over. Oh, my God. And then retailers. Whew, this is where I kind of lost my shit a little bit. Retailers are going to have to switch their strategies away from bourbon and focus on cheaper things. Cheaper things like vodka and light beer. I promise you, when people started to switch to vodka 30 years ago, 40 years ago, they wanted lighter spirits. They didn't want whiskey anymore because it's what old people drank. Uh, it was their parents' drink. And by the way, bourbon is not even officially a thing until 1964. It's just before I was born. So it's not like bourbon has always been. It's not even the original spirit of America. 
People came to this country knowing how to make whiskey from barley, knowing how to make brandy from fruit, you know, knowing how to make rye whiskey because that's what grew in the north. Corn was a southern thing. So this whole idea that America is built on bourbon, the fact that bourbon is America's native spirit, that's an act of Congress that was dictated by a guy who had a ton of bourbon to sell and couldn't figure out how to sell it overseas, had friends in high places who gave it what we call an AOC, an Appalachian origin control, which means Irish whiskey can only come from Ireland. Cognac can only come from Cognac, France. Tequila can only come from Mexico. Bourbon can only come from America. It might be our spirit, but it's not our original spirit. Let's get that nonsense out of here. So to think like if the bourbon industry fails, people will lose their job. Industries fail in this country all the time. And I promise you, the corporates, the Diageos, the Pernod Ricards, the Constellations, if they could figure out a fucking loophole where they could make bourbon in another country for cheaper and then sell it back here for more, they would. I promise you that. If Diageo could figure out a way to get through the loophole to produce bullet in fucking Peru for half the cost and then sell it here as bourbon, they absolutely would, and they wouldn't give a shit about putting Americans out of jobs. I don't want to hear this crap that if the bourbon industry fails, people are going to lose their jobs. Industries fail all the time. Again, I don't want to see anybody lose their job. I don't want to see anything fail. I just, the dramatic presentation of if the bourbon industry fails, People are going to lose their jobs. Yeah, and the world would just devolve into anarchy uh, because corporations are the ones who are funding this growth of bourbon. They're not going to fail. They're never going to fail. So maybe address those people, uh, not the supposed uh, conspiracy of people who want to see the bourbon industry fail we'd like to see corporations fail and maybe take back the bourbon world for ourselves. Um, but yeah, it's the issue I have is with the dramatic presentation of if the bourbon industry fails. Mm. And then to go further of retailers will have to change their strategy, move to things like vodka and light beer what you pretentious douche they'll have to go away from good bourbon and he literally says they'll have to go away from good bourbon and cognac to switch to vodka and light beer hey fred let's get something straight 20 years ago nobody in this country gave a shit about bourbon do you know what liquor stores sold vodka and light beer Vodka became huge. The vodka industry is in a tailspin because vodka is going down, not because of bourbon, but because of truly hard seltzer, white claw hard seltzer, RTDs, high noons, things like that. Vodka is down. It's slipping every year. Um, 
and yet it still maintains its sort of generational wealth position in the marketplace. Yes, there are brands that we don't see anymore. We don't see Freeze. We don't see Finlandia. We don't see Baru anymore. Uh, there were a lot of brands that kind of were in the market. There was too many vodkas. And now they're not all in the market. Has the world gone crazy? No. During COVID, the gin industry blew up. Now that's kind of receding. Is, is the world devolving into anarchy? Tequila. I, I don't know how tequila is still growing. On one hand, you hear like there's not enough tequila in Mexico. It takes forever to grow these agave plants. And yet there are new brands coming out all the time with celebrities getting on board with this shit all the time. But to think, let's break this down into two things. The sort of pretentiousness of liquor stores will have to go away from good bourbon and cognac and switch to these peasant drinks, these drinks of the poor, which, by the way, the drinks of the poor, those of us who work for a fucking living, we're the ones who built this industry. We're the ones who build the human relationships with our customers to get us to come back to the stores every day. We're the ones purchasing this stuff. Most of us aren't buying $1,000 bottles of Pappy. Most of us, the predominant base of the bourbon industry are the people who are buying Evan Williams, Jim Beam, Elijah Craig, Bullet, Maker's Mark. Those are the people who built this industry. Those are the people who will sustain this industry. When people run out of money and they're tired of collecting high-end bottles, the people who are still going to be buying bourbon, the people like me who actually like the stuff, who don't care about the status or the collectability of it, the people who actually like it, those are the things that they're going to buy. So the sole premise of like stores are going to have to go away from good bourbon and switch to peasant drinks like vodka i make more money on fucking vodka to be honest with you than i do on bourbon so the sort of pretentiousness of like oh my god they'll drink things that are beneath the great fred minnick despite the fact that julian van winkle his drink of choice is fucking vodka on the rocks so just sort of the pretentiousness of that statement they'll have to switch away from good bourbon and switch to things like vodka and light beer. Uh, why you say light beer is beyond me. Uh, maybe they switch to, you know, local craft IPAs. Maybe they go back to drinking Budweiser and Rolling Rock and PBR. You know why they do that? Because it's more affordable and it's less pretentious and it's more for the everyday drinker. Maybe. Instead of worrying about if the bourbon industry is going to fail, how about worrying about if the bourbon industry continues to pursue exclusivity, pretentiousness, status? Understand what's going on in the world right now. The, the haves have more. The have-nots have less. There's more of the have-nots than there are of the have-mores. We're the ones drinking. So maybe if the bourbon industry doesn't want to fail, maybe start focusing more on those of us who actually support the industry. Again, 
I don't subscribe to the theory that there's a whole segment of the population, you know, meeting in secret back rooms, praying for the failure of the bourbon industry, because if they were and the bourbon industry failed, there wouldn't be any Pappy or, you know, Woodford Reserve on the shelf anyways, because the, the whole industry, as Fred describes it, would collapse like a house of cards. There'd be nothing there. Um, but that statement alone, that liquor stores would have to re-strategize as if liquor stores from the end of prohibition in the 1930s till 2010 really when this bourbon boom started didn't survive and thrive on many other products those of us in this business have evolved with the times when seltzer started to become a big thing five years ago it's not like we we're like oh shit, what do we do uh, seltzers are big and nobody's buying wine anymore. We're going to go out of business. Or did we all go like, well, well, we better stock more seltzers and high noons and less wine. You adapt with the times. When people stopped drinking Harvey's Bristol cream and dry sack, we didn't continue to ignorantly order a hundred cases of it at a time and totally ignore the next big craze. No, we scaled back ordering what didn't sell and we started to order more of what did sell to think that the whole retail liquor industry is predicated on bourbon and that if bourbon fails then the whole retail liquor industry is going to shit and on top of that how many liquor stores really sort of depend on good bourbon to keep their business going it's a niche it's a small percentage overall when you really think about it because there's not a lot of birthday bourbon to go around there's not a lot of four roses small batch limited edition to go around there's not a lot of pappy to go around so it's not like every fucking liquor store in the country is surviving on allocated rare quote-unquote good bourbon most of us survive selling bud light 30 packs handles of smirnoff and tito's jim beam handles evan williams handles jameson handles and as much wine as we can sell that's how we survive to think that the whole liquor retail industry is predicated on bourbon if we were predicated on any one single product over the last 80 years whether it be wine whether it be beer whether it be spirits the the liquor retail world would have collapsed years ago if it didn't evolve with what the population's palates dictated over the last 80 years, it wouldn't be in existence now. So to think that bourbon is propping up the whole liquor retail industry is pretentious and arrogant. Think about it. How many liquor stores across the country are in urban neighborhoods? Do you think they're shipping a fucking pappy or good bourbon to urban neighborhoods? I have friends who, you know, just got back from Missouri. They're like, yeah, in Missouri, those liquor stores don't have anything but, you know, Jim Beam, Jack Daniels, Maker's Mark. Do you think those liquor stores are surviving on good bourbon or bourbon that they can get? I see a lot of those states, especially in the South, the you know, where there's still a ton of dry towns, don't get a lot of good bourbon. They get what is readily available in made in massive amounts. Jim Beam, Jack Daniels, Evan Williams. A lot of the really good bourbon, there's not even a ton of it out there. 
So it couldn't even go to national distribution. So it can't be in every store, which means those stores can't be predicated to have success on quote unquote good bourbon. Their success depends on the bourbon they can get and the beer that they can get. So to think that the whole retail world is predicated on good bourbon, again, is arrogant. It's self-absorbed. This whole sort of thing is clearly it's gotten me a little, a little wound up here. Um, all right. I'm going to finish this glass of whiskey, uh, take a quick break. Uh, when I come back, try to calm down, maybe wrap all this up. Maybe I'll even get in uh, a couple of the movies that I've seen uh, and end this on a good note. So uh, go grab yourself a drink, unless, of course, you're driving. Uh, and yeah, meet me back here in a minute. All right. Take a deep breath, see if we can get a... Oh, there we go. There's a better cork pop. All right, so... I Clearly, this, this Fred Minnick video kind of got the best of me, but I really think it shows the sort of disillusionment of people... In the bourbon world, and I'm not talking about, you know, people like you and I who enjoy bourbon, you know, and I, I kind of put the comment up, you know, on his page under the, the video and it like I don't want to come across like I don't like bourbon. I love bourbon. Um, there's more bourbon than any other spirit in my home bar. Uh, but again, I've been saying it for so long that it's getting out of control. Between the celebrities who are getting into it, um, the just rising price costs, and really, Fred, if somehow you stumble upon this podcast and you're still listening at this point, and I know how deeply you care about the bourbon industry, because you've, and, and I respect everything that Fred Minnick did before he became the Fred Minnick that we all know, uh, his military service, everything like that. Um, nothing but respect for him as a human being uh, and what he does. And I don't always agree with what he says as, you know, a bourbon writer. But I mean, that's the, the joy of this as well, is being able to have differences in debates and conversations. But if you care about your bourbon industry as much as... I think everybody who's ever seen or heard you or read your books and I have read your books um, and I respect the hell out of your talent as a writer. If you are as concerned about your bourbon industry as we all know that you are and you certainly have far more influence in that world than any of us will ever have. Do not, do not fear for your bourbon industry because of some perceived conspiratorial group out there who's trying to tear down the castle. I don't know that they're out there. I don't know that they're really out there like 
again, meeting in a back room, prepared to overthrow the government. I don't think that they're out there just praying that people lose their jobs and that the bourbon industry fails just so that they can get their hands on a Four Roses small batch limited edition. I don't think that's it at all. I think the problem is we create this sort of FOMO, fear of missing out, bullshit landscape in bourbon where we make things in small production. We create a ton of fucking hype about it and we make people feel like they need to have that bottle. And because they feel like they need to have it, they'll pay anything to get it. There's a good portion of the bourbon community that just wants to feel like they belong to something. They want to feel like they're part of it. They want to go on Instagram and Facebook and post that they just picked up a bottle of Old Forester 1924 or Old Forester birthday bourbon or Four Roses small batch limited edition. Those aren't the only whiskeys in the world. They're not the only bourbons in the world. And there's so little of it out there. And I get it to the extent of like, you know, these bourbons aged out fantastically. We have this very, very small batch of incredible bourbons to put out. And that's why there's not a ton of it out there. But this sort of perception that we have created for people of that's the bourbon world. Getting your hands on a birthday bourbon, you know, a Pappy, uh, an Elmer T. Lee, uh, you know, a George T. Stagg, a Michter's 20. Like, we create this sort of illusion that those things are attainable and that you should be able to find them. Because most of the people who are in this bourbon, well, not most, but a lot of the people in this bourbon community don't understand the world. They read it. I, I brought it up on the podcast months ago when a customer came in and asked me if I was carrying the Eagle 25. Carrying? They only made like a thousand bottles of it. Nobody's carrying it. Nobody, nobody you know may ever see it in the wild. But consumers believe that they should see it in the wild. They believe the bullshit of MSRP and that they should be able to buy it for MSRP. They believe that it should be available. They believe that they can just walk into a store that they've never been in before and just go like, hey, do you have any of that old Forester 24? As if I'm going to say, you know what? I've been fucking waiting all day for you to walk in and just ask me that question. Thank God you're finally here. I can go home now. I've been waiting for you all day. Where have you been? It doesn't work like that. So if you're fearful for your bourbon industry, don't worry about the conspiracy people who want to tear it down. Worry about the corporations that want to make money. Worry about the hype machines that promote things that people can't get, but they feel like they need to get to be a part of this thing. Worry about the speculators and the bankers who now have seen what this thing has done. They've seen what people like myself and a lot of you guys out there who will occasionally buy a specialty bottle. But most of us are drinking, you know, 
Lost Monarch from Redwood Empire, Jim Beam Black, uh, you know, Penelope, ASW, whatever. And and they want to sell more of it. They want to make more money. We're just buying everyday bourbon. Maker's Mark. You know, those are the things we love, we can afford. And every now and then we splurge on a good bottle that we can share with our friends. But those splurge bottles aren't the things we're drinking while we're watching the Super Bowl or while we're watching a Monday night football game by ourselves. You know, again, instead of worrying about the conspiracy to tear down the castle, worry about that. Worry about catering to the haves. Worry about, again, corporations, speculators, bankers, getting involved in something that was meant not for them. Worry about too many specialty releases. Start to get these people to put out more affordable quality products that more people can afford. The industry will thrive if more people have access to it. Make it more inclusive. By making it more exclusive, that's what's going to cause the bubble to burst. That's what's going to cause the failure. That's what's going to cause small companies. That's what's going to cause people to default on their loans because everybody thinks they can just come out of the gate with a $150 first release. Hello, hidden barn. Um, and that they're going to make a fortune off of it. It doesn't work that way. And when all those brands fall by the wayside and they will do not worry, Fred, about the state of your bourbon industry. You know why? Because Heaven Hill is still going to be standing. Jim Beam is still going to be standing. Jack Daniels, still going to be standing. Maker's Mark, still going to be standing. Maybe the Blue Runs, maybe the Kentucky Owls, maybe some of those high-end Old Elks will fall by the wayside. Although Old Elk won't. They've got a ton of money behind them. Worry about... Your industry caring more about people and the quality of the products that they're putting out instead of worrying about how much money they can make selling one bottle. You can make a lot more money selling multiple bottles at a more affordable price. That's what's going to cause the bubble to happen. These speculators are going to come in and make so much bourbon and then try to charge so much for it because they've got to make that money back. Kind of goes back to the old conversation of why is Jim Beam so cheap? Well, because their bills are paid. They've been doing it for 70 years. <clears throat> Even longer. Maker's Mark has been doing it for a long time. Heaven Hill been doing it for a long time. They don't owe bankers money on a $250 million distillery that they couldn't afford to build without borrowing all the money. Right now... They're flooding the market. This happens in every industry. You flood the market. Hell, it happened in music. When grunge music hit years ago, Nirvana hits, uh, Pearl Jam hits, Soundgarden hits. What did the record companies do? They flooded the market with shitty, mediocre grunge music. And then grunge music died. You know, it, it's happened with every style of music. Pop music gets big. They flood the market with it. And then it kind of dies off because there's too much of it and it stops becoming special. And how many times have I said, when everything is special, nothing is special.
So Fred, if you care about your bourbon industry, help it fix itself because it's not the conspiratorial people that are going to kind of cause it to fail. It's the bourbon industry itself that is going to fail itself. All right. So like I said, initially this episode was going to be called Christmas Gifts and Red Stuff. My Christmas gifts were bourbon. The red stuff, things that I bought for myself, um, but that have connections, human connections to other people. One of the things I did while I was on break, I went away for New Year's. My girlfriend and I love to go up to Salem, New Hampshire. Uh, Salem, Mass, not Salem, New Hampshire. Uh, yes, it's the place where all the witches are. Um, no actual witches. Uh, but it's just a very, very cool cool place to go visit. Uh, there's so much history and culture there. There's amazing Mexican restaurants and amazing coffee houses and you know places to get tea. And there's great neighborhood that's full of art murals on the sides of buildings, Notch Brewery, Deacon Giles Distillery, Far From the Tree Cidery, um, incredible breakfast places, the Ugly Mug, um, Gulu Gulu Cafe, like uh, Caramel, which is a French patisserie, just so much good food. Uh, the PEM Museum, just so much to do all within walking distance. It's where we go. There's a little store up there that I like to go to. Uh, it's called Pamplemousse, uh, which means grapefruit. Uh, I don't know how the store has that name. Uh, and we love to go there. Also the Salem cheese shop, which is like fucking heaven to me. You can't, I've yet to find a cheese that I don't <laughs> like plenty of vegetables. I don't like, but cheese, I will eat any kind of cheese possible. The funkier, the better. And we went up there, uh, sort of our New Year's Eve dinner that we brought back to the hotel was we bought a bunch of cheese from the Salem cheese shop. You know, we had some cheese, some salami, some sort of condiments, uh, accoutrements, crackers and pickles and all that stuff. And we kind of picked it up early in the day. And then we realized, like, we don't have anything to kind of serve this on or cut it with. <laughs> so we go to this little store, Pamplemousse, which has a little bit of everything. It's got some food products. It's got some food serving products. Uh, and they carry a small selection of spirits, never more than like 15 or 20 total spirits for the whole store. But they're always like five or six things you've seen everywhere. And then 10, 15 things I've never seen anywhere else. And I came across, and it's different every time I go there. And I go there a couple of times a year. I came across this one. This is called Song Kai. S-O-N-G space C-A-I. I will put a picture of this up on the gram. This is from Vietnam, and it's a spiced Roselle flavored gin. Using 100% Vietnamese ingredients. Um, there's not a lot of info on it, uh, but it's a spiced gin macerated with rose myrtle berries and Roselle buds for a year. So they take their traditional gin and then macerate it with these berries for another year. The bottle caught my eye. Super cool bottle. Um, very sort of typical Vietnamese, uh, Vietnamese sort of imagery on there. Uh, I don't want to be disrespectful, like a Hindu, Buddhist kind of, um, you know, flying elephant kind of thing. Very, very cool. Um I like to say that like I like it when the bottle looks like where it comes from. 
Uh, and this is a Vietnamese product and the front label looks like it came from Vietnam. Uh, I believe it's a 700 ml. Yeah, 700 ml, very sort of European, um, Asian kind of thing to do. And then imported, most of it is coming in at 700 milliliters now. And it just kind of caught my eye. And then it caught my eye because my friend Derek, his wife is Vietnamese. And I thought like, wow, this will be something really cool that I can share with him uh, that he would appreciate because, you know, he obviously is kind of entrenched in Vietnamese culture with his wife and his wife's family. Uh, and it was something I had never seen before. And I was excited to kind of share it with my friends back here as well. Um, so I grabbed it. No idea what it tasted like. And then I got it home and cracked it and here we go. The taste of this is somewhere between like Campari and like aviation gin. Like it's got a little bit of that sort of gin juniper flavor. But it's also got like a nice bitterness, like a Campari, but also a little bit of a sweetness from the berries. This is like, <laughs> it's almost like an RTD in a bottle. Like it almost tastes like a Negroni where you kind of amped up the bitter liqueur and dialed back the gin. Like it has gin flavor. It has almost like the red fruit of like a sweet vermouth. And then like the bitterness of a Campari, just the Campari dialed up a little bit. This is absolutely fantastic. And it's one of the things that keeps me really excited about spirits to know that there's something out there that I still haven't discovered. That's still interesting from another country um, that kind of showcases their ingredients, their heritage, their culture. That is so good. Now I don't know which wholesaler they bought it from, so I'm I'm still working on trying to get it into my store because uh, I don't know which wholesaler to order it from. But this is delicious, and the color. Again, I'll post this up on on the gram. Um, but the first of two two red things that I had planned for this podcast. And the second one, oh, bang of the glasses there. Yeah. Usually, sometimes I'll take like a little half an hour break in between recording segments. Not today. I was oh, yeah, kind of a weaker cork pop. All right. So the, the cork pop winner out of the four bottles this week uh, is definitely the Soundkai uh, gin. So while I was up there in Salem, there were two bottles that caught my eye. Oddly enough, they were both red liquids. And, you know, I bought the Songkai and I was contemplating buying the other one and I'm trying to get better with money and not spend all my money on booze. It's so hard, though, um, because it's just all so interesting to me and I want to taste it all and I want to share it all as well. So I saw this bottle as well, and this is Novo Fogo. It's an organic cachaça. Uh, which is like a Brazilian, almost like a Brazilian equivalent of rum. Um, 
It's made from sugar cane. It's, you know, like I said, Brazilian. Uh, cachaça is the basis for a cocktail called the Caparinha, which is basically like a Brazilian version of a mojito. You know, it's got some lime and some mint, some soda water. Absolutely delicious. Now, cachaça, admittedly, is a little funky, but I like that because I like funky. I like different. This one is their Tanager bottling. Um, super transparent. By the way, the gin was uh, 65. Uh, no, yeah, 65 proof. So a little bit lower than a regular gin, which also makes sense because in a lot of those countries, I know when my friend Peter went to Bali, like liquor is really expensive and not incredibly readily available. And there's definitely not a lot of barrel strength bourbon over there because a lot of their sort of religious beliefs don't lend themselves to drinking a lot. Um, so it would make sense to me that there would be a higher tax on higher alcohol. So the lower alcohol doesn't surprise me on the gin. Um, and the cachaça here, 84 proof. This is Tanager, and it's cachaça, again, made from sugarcane juice. Um, I love all the sort of transparency on the back. They are certified 100% organic. So if that's the kind of thing that you're uh, you're into, you've got that covered. Um, they plant a lot of native and endangered tree species. Uh, to save them from extinction in the you know the Atlantic rainforest. Fermentation, 18 hours with wild yeast. What that means is they basically put it in the vat, they leave it out in the open, and whatever flies in there and stimulates fermentation is whatever happens. They distill in copper pot stills. So pot stills, not column stills. More expensive to do it that way. You've got to clean the still every batch, um, but it also gets a great texture. Here's the cool part barrels, repurposed oak, so used bourbon barrels, and something called zebra wood. Now, I don't know enough about zebra wood, but I'm going to say that it might be a cousin to Ambarana, um, same country, um, and same kind of weird, funky, interesting note. Um, it even tells you on the nose, it's got tropical fruit on the nose, Grass and holiday spices on the palate and the finish cinnamon bark. And they suggest using it in a Sazerac cocktail. Now, on the nose, it's definitely funky because cachaça is definitely funky. Um, and the best way I can describe it, if you've ever had like a rum agricole, R-H-U-M, which is made from sugarcane juice as opposed to rum, R-U-M, which is made from molasses, which is a byproduct of making sugar. Um, you know that rum agricole has got that kind of funk. Um, different. Good, but different. And the zebra wood gives this such an amazing color um, that it's like, it's not as bright red as the Songkai Jin. Um, it's more like a brick red, little brownish hue there. If you're looking for something different, funky, conversation starter, this is wild. And yeah, it'll go great in a Sazerac cocktail. It would go great with 
you know, in a glass with some soda water, maybe a slice of orange or a dash of orange bitters. It's got some versatility, um, but it's low enough in alcohol that I could just throw it over ice and and sip on it. It's got enough little bit of bitterness that it could also act like an Amaro, kind of like the gin. Use it as maybe like a an aperitif before dinner to just sip on. Just again, cool and different. So I saw this up in Salem and I was going to buy it. I was like, no, you know, I don't want to spend the money. Uh, and then, you know, I went back to the hotel. I was like, I should have picked that up. You know, I just, you know, for me, when I get it in my head, it's not going to leave my brain until I finish the mission. And I got it in my head that I wanted this. And then, you know, the next day was New Year's Day. And Pamplemousse was closed. So I couldn't pick it up at Pamplemousse. Uh, and we were coming home on New Year's Day that night. So we got home and I was telling my friend Peter, who now works at another liquor store, um, Highland Liquors, if you're from the area, a great store up in Berlin, Mass. And I was telling him the story. I, I, you know, I was going to buy it and then I didn't. He said, don't worry about it. We carried it at my store and he was nice enough to pick me up a bottle, bring it to me. I paid him for it. Uh, and that's how I ended up with the bottle. So again, for me, it's a good tasting bottle. It's a very cool bottle to put on my bar and start a conversation. You know, it's got a connection to Salem, which is one of my favorite places to go with my girlfriend. Uh, but it's also got a connection to my dear friend, Peter, uh, who was able to procure the bottle and mule it to me uh, as well. So a uh, lot of good stuff with this one. Whew. And there we have it. All right. We finished on a common note that we started with probably drinking <laughs> four glasses of booze uh, kind of helped to calm me down there a little bit. Um, but I promise next week we're going to get into culture. We're, we're going to talk movies. I've got, you know, four things that I have notes on that I'm going to talk about next week. I promise unless somebody comes out and says something stupid again that requires me to rant for another hour uh, next week. Um, yeah, that one just got to me, guys. Uh, please check out the video if you haven't done so already. Uh, please comment on there um, or comment to me. Let me know what you guys think. If I'm way off base with my thoughts on this, please let me know. I think Fred is way off base and way out in left field. Um, wearing a, a tinfoil baseball hat uh, when it comes to a lot of the things he said in that video. Uh, it's not the way I feel about him all the time, but that video was just a, a little uh, goofy to me. Um, but yeah, let me know what you think. Let Fred know what you think. Um, whatever. Engage. And as always, thank you guys uh, for being here um, and for listening all the way through till the end. Uh, and if you're still here listening, you guys know the drill. If you haven't done so by now, go to the podcast page on Spotify or wherever you're listening to it. Click that follow button. Give it a five-star rating. Um, share it out on your social media. By the way, I was looking at the numbers from last week's podcast. The highest numbers I have done in the first week of any episode I have put out since I started doing the podcast two years ago. So thank you guys so, so very much for that. Um, it's inspiring. And again, I do this because it keeps me disciplined and it gives me something that I know I'm going to do every week. Uh, but to see that 
you know, there are that many of you out there who are now listening more than were listening when I ended up last season. Uh, that inspires me to get even better. It pushes me to be better at what I do, um, bringing you guys interesting content uh, on a weekly basis. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, yeah, follow along on Facebook and the Gram, uh, where you can leave comments and reviews about the podcast. Um, you can also message me through both of those platforms. And as always, everything that I'm posting on there are things that I've actually drank, listened to, books that I've actually read. Um, it's all real. Again, I know a bunch of people who post stuff that's it's not even theirs. It's just fake and it's all done for status. My stuff is all real. It's what I try to bring to you. It's it's me. It's the truth. It's, it's what I'm really, really doing. Um, so I will promise you that for, for always. Um, yeah. And if you need to message me for anything else, if you've got an idea for the show, hell, if you want to come and join and have a discussion about something, uh, or if you just want to call me out on something, uh, you can email me at thespiritsguide89 at gmail.com. All right, next week, we're talking movies and we're drinking samples. You know, over the last month, you guys have given me a ton of samples. Thank you so much. Um, I'm going to get to them all next week. So it's going to be a sizable amount of samples and a whole bunch of great movies, TV shows, and documentaries that I have seen uh, and have some thoughts on. So have a great week. And uh, yeah, by the time we didn't even get to talk about NFL playoffs last weekend, the NFC title game, the AFC title game. Um, yeah, we didn't even get to talk about that. By the time we talk again, the Super Bowl will have already happened. Um, so much going on, so little time to talk about it. <sighs> All right. Have a great week, guys. Enjoy the Super Bowl next week. Uh, be safe, but have fun. And uh, yeah, I'll talk to you next week. Cheers, guys. Yay!